You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Datages. Today's episode is the companion guest episode to the recent episode regarding the importance of liberal arts education, which was entitled, The Most Important Thing We Have to Learn is Learning Itself. In that episode, I spoke at some length about my time on the Humanities and Sciences Council at Stanford. Today, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce you to a great friend and colleague who is a fellow member of the Humanities and Sciences Council. And this is a very special occasion on Datages because we're joined today by our very first mom to be a guest on the podcast. I'm pleased to introduce all of you to Ina Coleman. Ina, welcome to Datages. Thank you so much for having me. And I am so honored to be the first mom. And hopefully somewhere in here, I will be having some momages to pass on to the audience. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, we thought about renaming this episode Momages, but we figured we would stick to uh, brand identity and consistency. I'm, I'm told by people smarter than me that that's important. I agree with that choice. Well, we uh, spent some time together talking in preparation for the interview, and we, you and I talked a lot about the uh, great work that we do together on the Humanities and Sciences Council. But before we get into that, I'd really like to give our listeners a quick snapshot of your background so they can understand the depth of both your education and your professional path since that time. And basically, I want to brag about you a little bit, if that's all right. Well, thank you. Sure. So listeners, Ina is a graduate of both the Stanford University undergraduate program and Harvard Business School. Today, Ina is a consultant in organizational development at Sirenia Partners, focusing on inclusion, diversity, and gender equity. And here's the incredible part. Listen to this list of board and advisory roles in which Ina serves. In addition to the Stanford Humanities and Sciences Council in which we both sit, she serves as an advisory board member for the USC Annenberg Center on Communication, Leadership, and Policy, and at the Harvard Business School Board of Deans Advisors. She had previously served as vice chair of the Los Angeles World Affairs Council Board of Directors, and at Stanford, she also served in the past on the advisory board of the Clayman Institute for Gender Research and the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. She presently serves on the board of directors for River LA and Big Sunday, and has served in the past on the advisory board of LATech.org, a nonprofit initiative of the Los Angeles tech community. And she's an advisor to several startups. And on top of all of that, Ina is a mother to three children, now ages 30, 28, and 25. Wow. Ina, my question is, do you ever sleep? I 
sleep. Yes. As I've gotten older, I am getting better at self-care. So yes, I am getting seven, eight hours sleep at night. My house is a disaster, but that's okay. That is okay. Absolutely. And you're right. Self-care is an essential part of life. So I, I shared all of that background, not just to brag about you, but also to illustrate the breadth of the beautiful tapestry that you've woven that is your life. And coming back to our core focus today, you and I have talked previously about your choice to pursue communications as a major at Stanford with a minor in economics and about how that liberal arts education prepared you to contribute and to achieve across so many different industries and sectors. Can you share with our listeners your undergraduate educational experiences at Stanford and how that has translated into such a diverse career landscape for you? Absolutely. At Stanford, I'm going to date myself now, back in the, I guess, late 70s. Okay, listeners, you now know how old I am. But there was that techie, fuzzy, you know, push and pull at that time. But something just told me that if I focused on a major that I enjoyed and that where my writing, my critical writing and my critical reading would improve as a young person, that that just made the most sense to me. So I majored in communications. I got a lot of crap for it. And that didn't really bother me. Crap from whom? Who was it that gave you the crap at that time? I would say my friends who were engineers, my friends who were pre-med, you know, but the friends that was, you know, joking and it was fine, but people who didn't know me who gave me a hard time, I just said, well, we'll see who writes better in the end. And it was me. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so one reason why I chose that major was the intense writing that you do as a communications major. And we did all kinds of writing across a variety of genres. We did writing for broadcasting. We did writing for long-term papers, writing in all kinds of genres. At that time, I didn't realize the incredible education I was getting and how that has helped me through my entire career. So I graduated from Stanford, worked at a accounting firm was back then it was Erston Young in the consulting area and had to write up reports for the partner about different industries that they were possibly going to consult in. And I remember the partner and the staff being very impressed with my ability to synthesize the information and, and write about it and organize it. And after that, I went to business school. And at business school, again, that intense critical reading and writing that I got from my humanities major enabled me to perform in class, perform on the exams. And I'm a big proponent of like the podcast you did about learning to learn that if a person can critically read and write, that just sets them an incredible foundation for anything they want to do. Because if you can be a critical reader and writer, you are then able to perform pretty much any responsibility or task you're asked to because you need to evaluate and you need to write down that evaluation for whatever the task in front of you is. So it all meshed together, in my opinion. And I'm always interested in business. That's why I went to business school and had a great time. Yeah, let's talk about that because, you know, you're one of the very small circle of individuals who has done an undergraduate degree at Stanford and then a 
business school at Harvard. So you've had a chance to study at both the Harvard of the West and the Stanford of the East. And can you sort of compare and contrast for us what those two experiences were like between your undergraduate education at Stanford and then the rigorous business school program at Harvard? That's a great question. I think that business school is very demanding and very challenging, whether you're at Stanford Business School or Harvard Business School. To be honest, I wasn't used to the hardcore, preppy, cutthroat banker types, but that's okay because, you know, we all have to learn to be exposed to a variety of people. And so it was an interesting experience sort of getting to know that world and seeing how it operates. And Harvard Business School, half of your grade is class participation. So you have to figure out how to time your comment. And then if someone already makes the comment, you got to figure out what else you're going to say next. Really putting that communications major to work (laughs) right away. Yes, yes, exactly. So, you know, it was a demanding, rigorous academic environment that I really enjoyed and like got so many incredible skills and made great friends at. So I don't really see a big difference between the two because they're both rigorous universities. I don't know. I know some people who went to Stanford Business School. I suspect that HBS is a little bit more intense. Mm. That makes sense. And did you find that coming from a communications major and the liberal arts background that you had, were you as prepared, more prepared compared to your classmates that you went into HBS with? I was prepared for the writing because the midterms and the finals, you write anywhere from two to four hours. I was prepared for that, and that did not bother me. However, the academics were challenging, and I was not as prepared for that. But that's okay. I figured out how to use the resources to get assistance and figured it out. So some areas, everyone has strengths and weaknesses. Strengths, all good. Weaknesses, a little tougher. And you figure out how to support the weaknesses. That's great. And obviously, in the vein of learning to learn, even though some of those quantitative skill sets that you're talking about weren't necessarily in your wheelhouse on the way in the door, it sounds like you were able to appropriately resource and find ways to navigate through that. Yes, absolutely. Every academic institution knows that students have a variety of skills and the resources are there for every student, no matter if it's undergrad or grad, a techie student might need help how to write. And so there's resources for that. So yes, once you figure out the resources and, you know, it's taking advantage of them and not being shy to use them to prop up any weaknesses you might have. And yeah, it all works out. All works out. Of course. I find as a parent, that's one of the messages that I try to deliver to my boys most often is that none of us is born knowing how to do everything and none of us is born proficient at anything. And the only way to get there is to find the answers around you and find the right resources to get to those answers. And I really try to lean on my boys and put them in situations to learn to self-advocate now so that when they get to college and get out of the house, they have that skill set and can do that themselves. It sounds like you had that skill set in an educational environment and it served you well. Yes, I did. And I have that same conversation with my young adults. And it was so interesting that when phones came into existence, 
and iPhones came in and kids were on their screens, in my opinion, the many skills interacting with someone you may not know, going and talking to someone, looking in their eye, I really feel that all the screens that these kids grew up with has really negated some of the skills that we had. We grew up where you needed to walk into the doctor's office and look the front desk person in the eye. You needed to walk into the professor's office and ask a question. So it's a constant battle. So my kids are older and they, they don't really have that issue anymore. But when they were in high school, it was tough. Absolutely. And let's shift focus a little bit now and talk about professional life. Sirenia Partners, uh, as I read the description, you know, your focus in your consulting business is on inclusion, diversity, and gender equity. Can you sort of outline for us what that means and how that's applied on a day-to-day basis within your company? Sure. So let me explain to the audience what an organizational development consultant is. An organizational development consultant is a person who's called into a company, be it a large organization, a nonprofit, or small business, to evaluate how it operates and make recommendations for improvement. In my work, I consult with those organizations that want to improve the variety and diversity of their workforces because they understand that research and data shows that the diversity of perspectives makes an organization more innovative, more creative, better problem-solving, and ultimately more successful financially. So that is what I do, and I morphed into that. I used to work at a Women and Girls Equality Foundation, and I saw many of my friends who were in the corporate world. I made a choice to not ever go in the corporate world, but my friends who were in the corporate world at some of the big corporations kept getting passed over for promotions, and I saw their frustration and devastation, and I was trying to figure out what is going on. So I left the Women and Girls Equality Foundation and decided to go in to this type of consulting and work with organizations that, that truly understand that when you have heterogeneous teams, you actually have better outcomes for your company. And when you do that, you actually have better equality and people who are, are talented and deserve it are promoted and are hired. So that is, that's sort of the background of how I morphed into this work. That's a very interesting story. And it really tracks with another episode of Datages, actually, where I did a three-part series on my experiences in philanthropy. And the third part of that series talks about an evolution of my experience in transitioning from not-for-profit philanthropy into for-profit philanthropy, basically looking at a for-profit environment and a business setting but leveraging the same skill set to achieve the same objectives that you could achieve in a nonprofit, but doing it in a for-profit setting. And it sounds like you've made that same transition and are really making a change in the world, but doing it in the for-profit environment. Right. Thank you. I'm trying. There are some corporations that are not interested in this work. They're more interested in their bottom line and they say, you know, we're good, even though they may not have any women as in their senior management, they may not have any people of color on their board of directors. But I don't really work with those organizations. I work with those that understand and get it that when you have a variety of perspectives, you actually, there was some tension because people differ, 
But if organizations and teams can work through the conflict, they actually come out on it more successful financially and I said, innovative, creative, problem-solving, all the research and all the data shows this. And we're we're getting better. I mean, more and more companies are are understanding this. The key thing now is retention. So if you do all this work, things that I work on with organizations is, okay, now that you have achieved some of your goals, as far as getting some um, variety of perspectives, more women, more people of color, you now need to focus on what are you going to do to retain them? So it's interesting to me as a business person that companies don't really think about retention enough, but you know, it's one company at a time. (laughs) Yeah. I think, uh, dealing with good employees is the same as acquiring customers. It's much easier to keep the ones you have once you've got them than it is to try to go out and find somebody to replace them. Absolutely. Why that is not top of mind at organizations. I don't understand that. So when you're working with these willing entities, the entities that are motivated to take advantage of the services and the perspective that you can bring without giving away sort of the keys to the kingdom, can you give us just kind of a sense of some of the things that you, in the first 30, 60, 90 days of an engagement, what is it you're looking at and what are the things that you're helping your clients to achieve? Sure. So one of the first items you look at is the interview process, because a lot of bias can come into the interview process. So we sort of watch how people are interviewed. We look at the interview teams. We look at the questions that are being asked in the interviews. And you won't be surprised that sometimes questions asked to a male are different to the female for the same position. And it's sort of assessing and evaluating that and then giving that feedback to the organization and people are like, gosh, I don't, you know, thank you. We didn't even know that that was happening. We didn't even know that we were treating or interviewing differently. And we will look at our questions that we ask in a more (laughs) more equal manner. So looking at hiring questions, looking at performance evaluations, all the data and research shows, and I, I haven't looked at it recently, but When it comes to reach assignments, in many ways, men get more reach assignments than women do. And the research doesn't really explain why. It could be that oftentimes, if there's a reach assignment, meaning you don't really have those skills, but your immediate manager saying, hey, can you do this? Sort of pushing you to grow to the next level. Right. But women, and I'm talking very general now, not all women. Some women say, I don't know of those 10 requirements to do this particular task. I have five of them. So no, I'm not going to go for the assignment. Some women, some women, not all. Many men would be, I've got five. I'm going to do it. I'm good. I'm good. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when I know half of what I'm doing, that's a good day. <laughs> so oftentimes performance evaluations are based on the person being evaluated, they're, you know, how they, how did they accept the reach assignment? Did they ask for it? How did they perform the reach assignment? So it's working on some of those issues and encouraging if a particular company, this has occurred, it's encouraging, Hey, encourage your, all your employees to go for reach assignments. If they have five out of the 10 skills necessary, they should go for it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what I find uh, very interesting about that is, you know, I, being an entrepreneur and, and having worked in a smaller company setting, when I hear the word consulting, I think about, you know, burning money. <laughs> I don't usually think about productivity associated with consulting. But what I love about what you're describing is it's not just somebody who's coming in and paying lip service to a large organization and helping them draft a policy that they can write down somewhere and satisfy their shareholders that they're pursuing diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're talking about real actionable steps that they can implement day one and have an, a direct impact on the operations of their business and their HR program in particular. Right. Absolutely. And that's what I truly enjoy about this business because like you said, many people hear the word consultant. They think, oh gosh, what are they going to do burning money? But of course I'm biased, but I feel that, that most of the people in the space that I'm in of organizational development, your job is to come in and help evaluate and, and you recommend changes, whether the company wants to follow through on them or not, but you recommend changes. You know, when you interview, have a woman and a man, when you are looking at performance evaluations, you should not evaluate people if they, of the fact that they don't return an email at 10 p.m. at night. There are some companies that, you know, in this 24-7 world, part of the evaluation is if they respond to emails right away, even at 10 p.m. at night. But, you know, you have to have a balance in life for your health, your sanity, and to retain your employees so that they're thriving. And different companies have different policies, but in one company, the advice was given part of the performance evaluation should not be that they return emails at 10 p.m. at night. So mm. highly recommend you remove that as a performance evaluation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, items like that. Yeah. Yeah. Things that are going to lead you down the wrong path. Right. Well, let's talk a bit more about the concept of diversity a bit more broadly, because I dedicated a lot of words in the companion episode to describing my perspective of the importance of diversity and not just diversity in its traditional sense around racial or gender lines, but diversity of perspectives, diversity of cultures, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of education. And as I said, I used a lot of words. And then when you and I were talking leading up to this interview, you said all of that in four simple words that I loved. I did? Yes, you did. Oh, and the okay. four words are <laughs> diversity makes you smarter. I wrote that down. Good. So let's talk about that. Diversity makes you smarter. Oh boy. Like you said, those are four words that say it all. So diversity makes you smarter. I'll start with where I got that from. And then it actually leads into the topic of this podcast. But it goes back to what I was saying a little bit before when I was discussing organizational development, consulting, and DEI. The research, when there was a heterogeneous group solving a problem, a business problem, and a homogeneous group solving a business problem, the heterogeneous group that had different people, a variety of perspectives, is what I said before. They actually were more innovative in solving the problem, more creative. They had conflict, but they worked through it. And the homogeneous group, no offense, was a little lazy because they knew each other. They said, oh, I, you know, I go golfing with Joe, so I know what Joe's going to say. And they sort of sat back. This is data. This was a research project. So the article, Diversity Makes Us Smarter, talks about this research 
and gives that bottom line that it makes everyone in the room smarter and actually makes the organization smarter. So that's where that came from, which leads to our topic here whenever you want to get into it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have spoken at length about in a diversity of educational background, and that's really the diversity that we're focused on here. So let's get into it. When you talk about a true liberal arts education, tell me your perspective on that. What does that mean to you? And how have you seen it both implemented and what have you seen as the results of people who have pursued a broadly based liberal arts education? Sure. So I know many people across a variety of industries who had a liberal arts education as defined by you in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And they range anywhere from people who are in the top of the field in government to money managers that were philosophy majors to English teachers that are you know, senior management at Fortune 500. So for me, the liberal arts education is exactly how you defined it. And more personally, when I talk to my kids about it, for me, also includes critical reading and writing. And critical reading is not only reading for information, but also reading to determine the ways of thinking about a subject matter. Critical thinking and critical reading engages not only with what the information in front of you says, but also how it presents that information and the context of perspectives in which it was written. So when we critically engage with the work of others, it's, it's often a first step in developing our own arguments and interpretations and analysis, which is learning to learn. So it's, as you said, if a person critically reads and they're open to ideas of perspectives that are different from their own, thinking and evaluating them with, that helps us evaluate our own ideas and perspectives. And then we respect, hopefully respect differences in thoughts. That for me is critical reading and that leads into critical writing because you take all of that and you critically write that up, your evaluation. So I'm biased, but I can't see how in today's academic environment, how students graduate from college and don't have the skills to critically read and write. Yeah, it's a big challenge because as people gravitate toward more technical education and career-focused education and don't have the breadth of these other disciplines from an educational perspective, particularly the reading and writing, as you highlighted, they completely lose the ability to communicate. And I mean, from my perspective, you can have all the knowledge in the world But if you can't communicate it, your skills and knowledge are completely useless. Right. And I think at Stanford, to combat that, which I think we heard on the H&S, one of the many H&S meetings, was how they're requiring the computer science majors and engineers to take writing, I believe, to try to combat that because you need writing for everything you do in life. Any job, you need writing. So... There is awareness of it. However, it's frustrating, and I'm sure you're frustrated because we both serve on the H&S Council, that it's unbelievable. It's still a constant battle after all these years because of what young people in college think what success is or tech is the, I have to, you know, look at tech 
for to make money or for my family or everything that Debbie Dubois and Brooker T. Washington, Washington, you know, argued about. So, you know, we just have to keep chugging along. Yeah. And we're certainly crusaders on the H&S Council. I, I want to spend a little bit of time, you know, not patting ourselves on the back for that, but at least helping the listeners understand what it is we do. And one of the things I find most rewarding about our organization, about the council, and I think it's improved in the time that I've been on the council, which is about six or seven years now, is that we're not just there as a sounding board. We're not just there to listen to the dean and get updates and hear what's going on and to talk about fundraising and development. But I feel like we've become really activist as a group and directly engaged in advising senior leadership within the School of H&S, which is the largest school at Stanford and has the greatest impact on the undergraduate educational experience there, and really being able to have some positive impacts on some key, important, critical areas of the curriculum and, and of the undergraduate experience. Is that your perspective as well? Yes, that's my perspective. And it is really quite an honor that we are asked for our opinion, our perspectives to roll up our sleeves and get involved. And, you know, I serve on a variety of of advisory boards and not every advisory board is like this. And it is, for example, you know, our H&S Council has gotten involved in trying to improve the Career Center. Absolutely. And so the fact that, that, you know, the dean wants us to be involved, it's, you know, she must value our opinions. And it's, it's really, it's, it's an honor and it's interesting and it's engaging. And it's, like you said, you feel like you're having an impact and are doing, are, are taking actions that will be better for Stanford students and ultimately better for society. Yeah. And doing it with some really great people. That's part of what I enjoy about it as well. Right. And speaking of which, I don't think I ever asked you how you got engaged with the H&S Council. What was your introduction to the council? That's a good question. I want to see if I remember. So I've been on the council since, I think, for about 10 years. Wow, that's great. That's a long time. And I think that I had done some volunteering, and I know that they're probably looking for some variety of perspectives, and I'm a pretty medium profile, you know, volunteer here in LA and beyond. And I think chaired a couple of reunions or something. And so then they came to me and said, Hey, would you be interested in serving on the H&S council? And I probably said, what's that? And then I, (laughs) and then I researched, researched it and said, Oh, I would be honored. Thank you. So yes. So I loved every minute. I'm sure you have too, because we hear what's going on at Stanford and all the incredible work and research and what's going on with the students, undergrad and grad and PhDs. And we get to be involved in solving some issues. So I love it. Yeah, it's rare air. It's uh, really a treat to be a part of the organization. You mentioned a couple minutes ago, and I want to come back around to it because I think it's really important, the work of W.E.B. Dubois. And it's something that we had the benefit of being exposed to through the dean and through the council, and really understanding how his work, The Souls of Black Folk, really outlines, not just for the African-American community, but for the educational system at large, what it is to have a true liberal arts education and the value of that education. And then 
to take that lens and apply it back to the audience to which he was speaking originally, you know, my observations and experiences over the years have shown me how critically transformative such an education can be for underrepresented minorities in particular. And obviously, you have a far better vantage point than I do into the importance of liberal arts studies and how important it can be for women and underrepresented minorities in the workplace and beyond. Can you share your perspectives on that topic, please? Yes. To get down to the nuts and bolts of it, in my opinion, that a liberal arts education, one that's focused on intellectual equality, breadth of knowledge, in my opinion, that enables you to be more of a senior leader because of everything I talked about in critical reading and writing versus a worker bee. When you look at the discussion between W.E.B. Dubois and Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington was advocating that people, you know, that African Americans focus on industrial and farming skills and crafts, which is worker bee. And part of the issue I've seen as a person of color and as a woman that oftentimes when I've been to meetings or been on task forces or committees that there's all kinds of work, you know, really hard, detailed grunt work that needs to be done. And oftentimes it's the women that do that. And then at the top, you often have in the senior management, the primarily men. And I think that if you have a breadth of knowledge and you can rise above just being a worker bee, for lack of a better term, then yes, I think you're going to be more successful. Then really the ticket to break through the glass ceiling. In my opinion, yes. That's great. And, you know, I, one of the things I want to talk about is how and if this translates across all industries. You're, for instance, an advisor to many technology firms, many students and their parents as well, believe that if you're going to go work for a big tech company, you better have a degree in computer science to land that job. What do you say to that notion? So the good news that's changed a little bit because these technology companies, they need people to code, coders. But as you pointed out in your podcast, coders might become obsolete with AI. But besides coding, these technology companies also need people who can critically read and write, can make arguments, can take information, you know, a lot of information and have the skills to boil it down, have people skills, can manage people. And that's all the breadth of knowledge that you get from a liberal arts education. And slowly but surely, I see these technology companies understanding that my Two of my kids majored in science, technology, and society at Stanford. Okay. And one graduated in 2014, one graduated in 2019. And it was interesting. At the graduation ceremony for the department, they have the graduates walk across the stage and they say where they're going to be working. And many of the graduates in that department were working at tech companies and all over, all over places. So 
it's slowly changing. I think, as we've discussed on HNS Council, I think parents don't quite know that because it not, may not be a world that they're, that they're exposed to or know what's going on and, you know, the cost of a college education. But if a parent can be educated on it, which is something that we're trying to do, I think at Stanford, then maybe they'll see that, hey, you know, if, yes, I would love my kid to major in computer science and be a coder, but also if my kid is a SDS major or English major, they still, they'll be, still be able to go and work in probably any industry they want because they have that breadth of, this breadth of skills. We're hoping, but as we discussed, it's education all over the place. The parents, the students, the tech companies, all of it. And the parents are, are such an important factor, as you said. One thing that I think you and I share, Ina, is that we both got a great head start because of our parents. And we had great role models in our parents that set us off on a good trajectory, educationally and otherwise. And you shared with me that your father was a doctor and your mother was a teacher. Can you share some of the lessons that they bestowed on you growing up and how they were best able to communicate with you and to you these important subjects and instill that within you and how it's carried forward to today? Sure. I think that one of the most and very simple lessons from them growing, you know, from when I was eight or nine was education is key. You need to go to school, get an education, learn, and that will enable you to set you on the right in the path of what you want to achieve in life, working hard and being a young black girl, 10 years old, was telling me, you know, sorry, we have to tell you this, but you need to be better than the white student next to you because racism would exist. And just be aware of that. And, you know, they didn't say what I'm about to say. They didn't say, have, don't have a chip on your shoulder. Just be aware of it and just work hard. So I took that to heart. It didn't bother me. And, you know, I had a variety of, of racist incidents my entire life, even still now. So I just worked hard. It was always an A student. And that just motivated me to always want to be the best that I could. One of the things I find interesting about that story is it's an example of something I believe very much, which is when you have parents that are willing to sit down and talk with you about the really difficult and challenging subjects that can be so negative and so damaging, such as racism, uh, as a prime example, the ability to sit down and talk through it really disempowers that negative force in your life in many ways. Is that what your experience was in having that, that open line of communication with your parents? Yes, you've articulated it much better than I would have. But I think that you've probably read in the media, every parent of color, I'll say every black parent has that talk with their kids. I had that talk with my kids. And what happens is that you don't, like I said before, it's not a chip on your shoulder. It's just... You, we just live with it. It's just the way it is. And it doesn't bother, it bothered me. It doesn't bother my kids. They're just aware of it and it just motivates them to work hard. And like you said, it's having that talk and that awareness just enables you to handle something when it comes your way. And the way that uh, your parents spoke with you about some of these challenging subjects, is it the same way that you speak to your children today or has it 
changed and adapted over time? You know what? It's probably the same. Where as a black parent, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's around, I mean, every, every family's different, but it's probably like around 10, 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And it's probably the same conversation. Even though, you know, this is the 2000s, 1990s, and that it's a case like 1980s, 90s. You try to say it with just a couple sentences and not make it be a total bummer. But also it's just realization. This is the way of the world. And each of my kids have experienced different incidences where they were victims of discrimination and racism and they were just ready to handle it because it was it's just the way of the world. I hope I live to see racism be erased, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's such a positive statement in your story about the continuity of knowledge through a family, but at the same time, such a negative statement about the necessity of that knowledge carrying on to the next generation when it should have been wiped out long ago. Right. It's hard. It's really hard. And one of my favorite quotes about this kind of topic and the future it's from Gloria Steinem, actually. So someone asked her, I don't know, 10 years ago, nine years ago. I think she's in her late seventies now. Someone said, you know, Miss Steinem, are you, is it bum you out that you're still, you know, still having to fight for still fighting women, the fight? Yeah. Right. Women's equality. Is it hard for you? And her response was just so, just so energizing. She said, no, because I'm a hopeaholic. What else is there to be? A hopeaholic. Let's, a hopeaholic. Let's hope, can, let's hope we can all become hopeaholics. That's is a great that one. great? So when I'm down and I'm bummed out about something and something's happened, I go, no, hopeaholic. What else is there to be? <laughs> Just go take a big swig of hope and you're good. <laughs> exactly. That's great. And let's talk more about uh, your role as a parent. You've obviously raised three amazing, high-achieving children outside of some of the topics we've covered so far. What has your advice been to them about education in particular, uh, sticking with our theme for today? I think that from day one, my advice to them was, all I expect is that when you are studying in a course, and you have an exam that you do your best. You give it your all. I don't really, I don't care about the grade. Mm. What counts is your effort. And if you give your best effort, then that's what I take pride in as your mom yeah. is that you have given it 100% of your effort. If you give something, Academically, 50% of your effort, you don't even academically, even work-wise, if you just give it half of your effort or not all 100%, then I'm disappointed. But if you give it 100% of your effort, and I know you tried your best, then I'm so proud of you, and that's all I expect. It takes so much discipline as a parent, doesn't it, to focus on rewarding the effort and not the results when the rest of the world wants to only focus on the results. Exactly. And in the environments, you know, kids are in, if a kid is in a particularly high pressure high school or college like Stanford, of course, 
right? Then of course they're looking at always wanting to get, you know, get an A or B in the top. But I've had to tell all of my kids it's the effort and the grades that come from it come from it. And guess what? Newsflash. In life, there's always going to be people that are better than you and more successful than you and more accomplished than you and get better grades than you. And in life, there's going to be people that are not as successful as you. They are below you in grades and success and accomplishments. So be happy where you are with the effort that you make. And the other news flash is I've been out of school 25 years now and no one's asked to see my report card so far. Exactly. Exactly. So outside of lessons about uh, education, do you have certain pieces of parental wisdom? Uh, What is your go-to parenting advice, your momage of choice? My momage of choice would be, particularly as the kids get older and become young adults, explain to them that you want to know where they are and who they're with for their safety and security and not to get in their business. Because the world, unfortunately, is not a safe place everywhere. So, sweetheart, if you go out somewhere, you drive somewhere, and I don't know exactly where you're going or who you're with, and I can't reach you and it's been two days, then I can't find you. So, again, don't be shy in having the conversation with your kids, and they're going, oh, gosh, mom, you just want to know where I'm going. No, I just want to make sure you're safe and you're secure it's not about being your business. Get over it. That's the way it is. Seems like the uh, Marine Corps method of parenting. It's trust and verify. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh boy, if I use that, it really won't go over well. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Ina, glad we're already laughing here because here on Dadages, there's a, another tradition that we celebrate, which is the uh, legacy of the bad dad joke. And I'm hopeful that you can prove my theory that uh, moms can tell terrible parent jokes also. So I'm wondering if you have a real zinger that you can share with us today. So if you indulge me, I have a joke that is not a zinger and then a second one that is a zinger or a second one that's awesome. No, go for it. All right. So the first one is children, kids should never make fun of their moms for teaching them how to use their phones because we taught them how to use a spoon. So there. So there. So there. Then the second one is corny. Why is a computer so smart? I don't know. Why is a computer so smart? Because it listens to its motherboard. Ah, there you go. I knew you had it in you. That's great. Well, Ina, this has been really amazing. It's been great to spend time with you uh, between our H&S meetings, uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person at the next meeting coming up in a couple months. This has been just a a great discussion, and I'm sure that uh, our listeners will appreciate it and benefit from it as well. And I'm so excited that you got to be the very first mom to, to join us on Datages. It was awesome spending time with you. Well, thank you again for having me. I've really enjoyed our time together and I really appreciate and I'm honored that I'm the first mom and it's very exciting and congratulations again on an incredible podcast series. 
that you'll go down in history. It'll be the answer to a Jeopardy question one day. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table. And what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do? Because I am doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.